first of all, thank you uh, for, for hosting me and for, for bringing me out here. I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you're here. Uh, Professor, I want to thank you all for coming. I'm going to apologize in advance. I do a lot of public speaking. I do not like speaking from notes. But I'm going to have to speak from notes today because this is an area that's a little bit outside my area of expertise. You'll look through, I'm sure you will all go out and buy at least one copy of the book, and I thank you in advance from the bottom of my son's college funds, and I do from the bottom. Um, and you will see there, there's very, very little on anti-Semitism. I don't think the word anti-Semitism appears. The word Jew or Jewish barely appears. And that, frankly, was on purpose. The purpose of writing this book was there's this huge debate out there, what is Hezbollah? Because Hezbollah is many things. It is a political party in Lebanon. I mean, you like Hezbollah, you don't like Hezbollah. There's no denying it is a political party in Lebanon. It is a social welfare provider in Lebanon. It is a standing militia. And there actually is a decent amount of literature out there on Hezbollah on all of those types of things. That is to say, the kind of public personae of Hezbollah. But if you looked, and I did, there was almost nothing out there on Hezbollah's international activities, its illicit conduct, ranging from terrorist plots to procurement of arms and weapons, including, by the way, a significant amount in Canada, <coughs> logistical support, criminal activity, fundraising, all of those things across the board, including, of course, actual terrorist plots. And that just seemed to me strange. And so after nine years of research and writing, this book came out, and the purpose was to focus explicitly on that conduct. At one point, there was going to be a chapter on Hezbollah's uh, communications uh, elements and strategy, which would have included an element in anti-Semitism, but the book, which I expect would be very short, because after all, how much do you really think, how much material do you really think you're going to collect on the covert side of an organization, right? The stuff that was out there before is all the overt stuff, that if you went and you interviewed someone from Hezbollah, they'd talk to you about it. This is the stuff you can't ask them about. In fact, one of the reasons, one of the things that prompted me to write this book is, like a long story short, I was invited to attend a U.S. government-sponsored conference by invitation only, but unclassified for current and former U.S. intelligence analysts on Lebanon, Hezbollah type of stuff, not just Hezbollah, not just militancy. And when they got to the militancy part of things, uh, speakers got up and they said, well, Hezbollah's never done any of the things around the world you're saying, they're just a political organization, they, they fight the Israeli occupation, and the Israelis don't like that. You Americans are close to the Israelis, so you call them terrorists, but they're not really. And this couldn't be farther from the truth. One speaker from Lebanon got up and said, what's my proof for this? I went, and I got an audience myself with Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah. And I asked him, eye to eye, I said to him, yes, Sayyid, using his honorific, does Imad Mugnia, the purported head of Hezbollah's terror swing that the Israelis say exists, but I don't believe exists, says this academic. She says to him, to Nasrallah, does he exist? And Mugnia says no. And so she comes to this conference and says, I asked him, he said no, ergo Mugnia doesn't exist, QED. This is in 2003. Fast forward five years to 2008, when Imad Mugnia, who did exist, but his existence was denied in life because he was the head of Hezbollah's covert terrorist organization. When you really think you go up to the guy and say, hey, uh, I'm, I'm Imad Mugnia, and you want to have coffee anytime, I'm just down the street. That, that's not a very good covert activity. Um, embraced in death after the fact. So this is what prompted me to write the book, and I thought it would be a very short book. It ended up being a much longer book. I didn't touch any of this stuff that we're going to talk about today. So when I was asked to do this, I actually had to think a little bit to see, do I have any material here? And I wonder if any of the unique material from the book might have some interesting things to say if I go through it again looking at it for something else. 
because among the stuff I was able to collect by traveling the world and asking nicely and asking and asking and pestering and pestering, whether it's here in Canada or the United States or Israel or Peru or Brazil or, or Singapore or, or um, the Philippines or Chile or Romania, I mean around the world, every Western European country was a lot of documentation, including for some of the older cases, um, some of them after 9-11 even, uh, unique material including intercepted communications, intercepted letters, we'll get to some of that in a bit. Now there wasn't as much on the anti-Semitic side in there that I thought I might have, but there was enough when I looked at it to have a conversation, and, and that's what I wanted to, to talk to you about, but you'll forgive me for referring closely uh, to the notes. Look, here's the bottom line. Um, after the Israeli withdrawal, um, um, invasion of southern Lebanon, which came just shortly after the uh, Iranian Revolution in 1979, you had a confluence of events. I'm not going to go into them all in detail. You'll read the first chapters of the book. You'll know more than you ever wanted to know about the birthing of Hezbollah. At the time, though, what happened was Iran sent about 1,500 Quds Force officers, Hazdaran, into the Beka Valley, and they trained up these guys, Shia militants, who had been affiliated with a variety, a motley crew of different radical Shia militant groups and brought them together under this one umbrella. Interestingly, it was originally intended to be just an umbrella, but pretty quickly it became a very formal, structured, organized group as we now know it to be. In fact, it was almost from the inception, even though that wasn't originally the intention. And you might think that the main things that the Iranians provided them was training on, use this type of a weapon, and here's how you make an IED, and here's how you do this type of a bomb, and there was that too. But that wasn't necessarily the biggest contribution. The biggest contribution was indoctrination. Indoctrination to multiple things. First of all, the, uh, uh, the, the new idea within political Shiism of waliyat al-faqih, the idea of the rule of the jurisprudent. This was something that the Ayatollah brought with him in the revolution. Until then, Shia Islam, in terms of politics, was quite quietist. The idea was religious leaders will sit in the holy cities, calm, etc., and will leave the politics to the politicians. Comes the Ayatollah and says, no, only the people who are truly inspired by God can be ruling, and there is a waliyat al-faqih, there is rule of the jurisprudent, which means that if you follow this, that the supreme leader, in this case of Iran, is kind of the mouthpiece of Shia uh, uh, belief on earth, and you need to follow this person. Not all Shia subscribe to this, but Hezbollah does. Let's be clear, we can't say that every single foot soldier, every single person who gives a dollar, there's, there's diffuse uh, affiliation, but certainly at the higher levels of Hezbollah, this is the case. And that brought with them a whole bunch of different things, including some really nasty anti-Semitism. Remember that when the Israelis first came into southern Lebanon and that what didn't, it didn't appear that they were going to stay very long and they were kicking out the Palestinians that the Shia in the south didn't like because the Palestinians were really nasty to them, the Israelis, the Jews, were greeted with rice and candies. That didn't last very long because the Israelis stayed longer than they should have, to be sure. But that kind of inherent anti-Semitism wasn't what we now know it to be. Now, over time, we also see shifts within Hezbollah's anti-Semitism. And we'll talk a little bit about how over time, at certain points, Hezbollah realized that sometimes anti-Semitism is just bad for the brand. Especially as, second trend, the globalization of media pushed the message farther maybe than they wanted it to go. 
it might have been a really useful message to galvanize and, and excite people at your grassroots to, to give a lecture to a, to a rally. But next thing you know, suddenly media from the Western media is covering your rally in the southern suburbs of Beirut and you're being lambasted as anti-Semitic and nasty, and maybe that's not what you want. And then as it gets further, not just television, not just Hezbollah's own television, Hezbollah's own radio, but Hezbollah's own satellite television station, Al-Manar, at first proactively broadcasting everywhere the nastiest, nastiest, sure anti-Israel, sure anti-American, but anti-Semitic. And I'm not going to conflate anti-Israel with anti-Semitic today. There is a whole phenomenon, especially in the West, where increasingly anti-Semitism is portrayed uh, as being just anti-Israel and therefore we're okay. That's a different phenomenon. For Hezbollah, we all know that they don't like Israel, right? They did that, and that alone, that might not entirely be anti-Semitic. We'll see how it blurs. But as media became truly global, they also kind of lost control over who gets to propagate what. And so the other distinction I want to make today is we're going to look at things that are kind of Hezbollah incorporated, Hezbollah officials, Hezbollah institutions. You can actually say this is Hezbollah. And then we're also going to look sometimes at things that are lower down, followers, members, almost certainly not clearing their talking points with Nasrallah or anybody in between. But growing up in this milieu, also not being entirely unrelated. And then we're even going to see, and we'll even see a video from here in Montreal, and a little bit in Toronto, I think, of what happens when people who start following the idea of Hezbollah, in whole or in part, and by no means everybody, but some of them, pick up some of this really, really nasty anti-Semitism uh, as well. All right. So this goes back a very, very long way, uh, from public lectures reported in the press to all these other things. It starts way back, I just randomly took 1992, we could have taken one much earlier. Um, Fadlallah is an interesting character, you'll read about him in the book. He started as being one of the actual founders of Hezbollah, later broke with Hezbollah, among other reasons, because he did not subscribe in total to the idea of Waliyat al-Faqih. He, Fadlala, was actually a, a more significant marja, a, a, a grand ayatollah, a truly learned person, much more than any of the supreme leaders, uh, and they've gone down. The first supreme leader was more learned than the current supreme leader. And then Nasrallah, uh, a decade later, in October 1992. By the way, also a caveat that, you know, I, I put uh, pictures up here because I, I tend to find that people need pictures to look at. Not every one of these. Uh, in fact, a great many of them, you'll see here, I put them so you'll see this is from Fars News, Iran News. These are not necessarily Hezbollah images, okay? I'm not trying to ascribe that to them. Um, but this goes back a, a very long way and it's continuous over time despite the fact that, despite the fact that, um, despite the fact that at certain times they, they kind of put a hold on things. Now, we'll, I'll show you a little bit, uh, a couple of clips from this later, but lest you think that this is just something that is far away, and is removed, and is only long in the past. Uh, we're going These are just some stills. Uh, we're going to look at, at some of this, uh, where they're showing the Hezbollah flag. Uh, they're saying to the uh, pro-Israel protesters, "You see this flag? Uh, these guys are going to come get you." 
Uh, there's one where they're saying Jewish tiles, you're going to die, you're going to effing die. Uh, the best one is they make uh, an alliteration in Arabic, uh, I, I, which sounds, it rhymes in Arabic, Palestine is ours, the Jews are our daughters, we'll, we'll get to that later. But I don't want you to think that this is just something that is, that is far removed from what we're talking about now. We talked about how this was, at a certain point, bad for the brand. Um, first in the mid-1990s, and I, I ascribe this to the realization that mass media is really beginning to proliferate, and they wanted to get a little more control of the message, Nasrallah starts making some comments saying, this is not about Jews. This is about Israel. This is about Zionism. We don't accept Israel's right to exist, but this is not about Judaism, Jewish people, the Jewish religion. But I just want to point out that for anybody who tells you that, you know, that, he first starts talking about this around March 1998. In May 1998, just two months later, saying something very, very diff different when he's noting that regrettably uh, an important date on the Islamic calendar, the 10th of Muharram this year, coincides, he says, with the 15th anniversary of the historic catastrophe, the Nakba, uh, the tragic event, namely the establishment of the state of the Zionist Jews. It's not the state of Israel. It's not the Zionist entity. It's the Zionist Jews, mind you, descendants of apes and pigs on the land of Palestine, the holiest of our places. If he'd taken out just apes and pigs, maybe he could have said, well, when I said Zionist Jews, I just meant that the Zionists in Israel, they're Jews. When he gets into descendants of apes and pigs, it's, it's quite clearly got some of the, some of the nastier... Um, uh, anti-Semitic uh, connotations uh, going along with it. Now, uh, this continues over time. Uh, he says things like this multiple times, our, our war is not against Judaism and the Jews, but against Zionism. Um, and in fact, if you look back, and, and I did, at Hezbollah's official website, uh, at their posts, um, uh, almost none of them, almost none of Nasrallah's speeches where he talks about anything anti-Semitic still appear on the website. You've got to look elsewhere. You've got to go look at collections of his speeches that have been printed in books and elsewhere. Again, they kind of have a sense that it's bad for the brand. Um, now, in 2002, the news director for Hezbollah's Al-Manar television station, at first it was television, became a satellite television station, he told an American journalist that anti-Semitic remarks were banned from Al-Manar's broadcasts. In the very same breath, he also the director also mentions that he's considering a new program, he's very proud of it, on scholars who dissent on the issue of the Holocaust. So he's presenting this in kind of academic um, um, veneer, but he's obviously uh, getting at the point. His Bible goes even further in 2005. They invite four anti-Zionist rabbis uh, at a pro-Palestinian conference in Beirut, which is also attended by Hamas and others. And a Hezbollah parliamentarian, Abdullah Kusair, says, you see, this shows Hezbollah's never been against religions. Hezbollah supports all religions. It supports interfaith dialogue, has no problem with any religion. Hezbollah considers Zionism to be the entity, the enemy, not the Jews as a people or a religion. And then in 2009, Hezbollah issues a new manifesto, which replaces its original manifesto. And then the party maintains that it's a national liberation organization, a Lebanese organization protecting the country against the Israeli threat, and de-emphasizes its Islamist goals writ large. So the original manifesto specifically said that it wanted to create a Shia Islamic state in Lebanon. Lebanon was then, and has become more so over time, by the way, much more so over the past few months, we'll get to Syria at the very end of our discussion, where a million Sunni Syrians have now refugees moved to Lebanon. That is a fifth 
of the population, completely changing the demographics and putting Hezbollah under some significant threat. But anyway, saying that they are uh, de-emphasizing their Islamist goals, and it makes sense in a country with a large po Christian population, Druze, etc., uh, D-R-U-Z-E, Druze, not Jews. There are almost no Jews left in the country, a very, very small number. One synagogue that the Lebanese government uh, did recently uh, reconstruct, uh, but it's kind of sad for the Lebanese Jews who are almost all gone. One, one of the last uh, Lebanese Jewish families to leave is my neighbor, and just don't feel comfortable going back at all. Uh, on opposing Israel, however, uh, that was generally widely accepted uh, in, in the region, so that, that stayed in the manifesto completely. And while there's no way for knowing for certain why it is, the fact remains that Nasrallah's speeches, as I mentioned, they're not on the website, mokawama.org, even though he was making all these statements, uh, for example, 1992, and I'm quoting, you Jews, leave our land, you have no home among us, go back from where you came, for there will never be peace or reconciliation between us, only war, resistance, and a language of, language of war and bullets. Now you could you could argue with me that is not a particularly you could argue it's not a particularly anti-Semitic statement. That particularly seems to be particularly focused on Israel, and I would accept that. But that's not consistent. So, for example, Hezbollah obviously opposes Israel's existence in word and deed. Not all of its anti-Semitic statements are tied to Israel, however. In 1997, Hezbollah expressed concern about this movie, Independence Day, which I found disturbing because I really liked it at the time, in which a Jewish actor plays a Jewish scientist, along Will Smith, who plays uh, an Air Force pilot, defending the planet against alien invasion. You might ask yourself, what problem Hezbollah has with this? Well, I will tell you, Hezbollah says, and I quote, that this was propaganda for the so-called genius of the Jews, and their alleged concern for humanity, end quote. And then went on to call on all good Muslims to boycott the movie. Interestingly, it appears very few people did. The movie did quite well, earning about $600,000, which the New York Times called an impressive showing for any film. But to give you a sense of proportion, it was a worldwide hit and did just fine in Lebanon, raking in a just a little bit less in Lebanon than it did in Egypt. Egypt's population is about 15 times larger than, than Lebanon's. But there are other examples if you want to talk about Hezbollah institutions. Hezbollah institutions themselves employ explicitly anti-Semitic motifs as well. So consider, for example, the fundraising brochure on the far left from the Islamic Resistance Support Organization. Islamic Resistance is a translation of, of Mukawama. Right? It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's Islamic Resistance. Um, this is what Hezbollah refers to as its militia. So if you were not to translate it not quite literally, you, you, you could just as easily translate this as Hezbollah Militia Support Organization. Um, and in fact, the U.S. Treasury Department designated this as a terrorist entity, describing it as a key Hezbollah fundraising organization. And when it did, it, um, it declassified and put on its website, you can find it on Treasury's website today, it's hard to see that the light, it's not great here, there's a donation form in its original Arabic, and then a translation here, and apparently the IRSO didn't get the memo. This is 2005, 2006 when they were designated, when this was found. Several years after 9-11, when it became quite clear that the U.S. Treasury and many others, uh, Canadian, FinTrack, and, and others, were looking very closely at terrorist abuse of charity, and those that were still abusing charity tended to focus more on widows and orphans and try and obfuscate any type of 
overt militancy. Well, on, on the uh, donation pledge card, you could check a box to give to orphans. You could still do that. You could, you could check a box to give, you know, a monthly thing, uh, kind of, you know, adopt the child in need. You could check a box for bullets. You could check a box to fund a Mujahid project. You could check a box to fund a jihadi. You could check a box for rockets. So they clearly had not gotten a memo. And in case that isn't obvious enough, so I, 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 I demonstrate for you this, this symbology of their fundraising brochure on, on, on the far left. So you have coins going into a collection box in the shape of the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, the third holiest site uh, with, uh, for, for worldwide uh, Muslims, and on the Temple Mount, which is the holiest site for Jews. Uh, and on the front of it, you may not be able to see so well, but on the front panel of the octagon is, uh, is uh, Hassan Nasrallah himself in, in the black turban. Uh, the money comes into the collection box as money. What comes out of the collection box are bullets targeting a broken star of David. Now this was found uh, around the world where Hezbollah was using his charity to raise funds for well, what it said, everything from orphans to the cost of bullets and rockets. What's perhaps a little bit more disturbing is that it also appears the same basic image in a children's activity kit. Uh, and it includes a kind of a, a form that folds into an envelope so that children could cut it out and send in their own donations, whatever change they might have. The brochures and the kits were part of a fundraising campaign nicknamed Savings Account. Like children could open their own little IRSO, Hezbollah fundraising savings account, and they were discovered by Israeli forces who uh, went in on the ground in Lebanon during the second war in Lebanon in, in 2006. Now, um, children is an important and disturbing theme. Uh, I'm going to give you a few things that are kind of unique uh, uh, visuals. What you have here on the left is a guy named Mohammed Hamoud. Mohammed Hamoud is in jail in the United States serving a very long sentence for being uh, the main leader along with his brother and a few cousins and some other buddies from Beirut in a Hezbollah fundraising cell that was primarily based in Charlotte, North Carolina in the United States. They are doing a lot of things but mostly what they were doing is cigarette smuggling. So in the Carolinas you can buy cigarettes with basically no tax and they were going to RJ Reynolds and other outlets and buying them bulk. And then they'd ship them across state lines, making it a federal offense to places like Michigan, where there's very high tax. As well as great counterfeit capabilities for documents, for money, for stamps. They counterfeited the stamp that shows that you paid the tax. So they stamped the cartons and then sold them in the black market to mom and pop stores that didn't care. And they made a, a relatively hefty amount somewhere in the upper hundreds of thousands, the cartons, and then sold them in the black market to mom and pop stores that didn't care, and they made a, a relatively hefty amount, somewhere in the upper hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, unclear exactly how much. It's unclear how much of it actually went to Hezbollah. Some of it they lived on, some of it they sent to their families, but at least some went to Hezbollah. And the second half of the network, I'll show you some of that later, was here in Canada where they were procuring dual-use items, laser range finders, night vision goggles, things like that for Hezbollah, and there's a whole story about that. Uh, the main connection between the two was one individual who was providing fake IDs and credit cards so that they could do credit card bust-out schemes. So, make a long story short, you can either have a counterfeit credit card or I can go up to you and I can say, hey, you're about to graduate from McGill, congratulations. You're gonna go home, 
to some other country, Lebanon, whatever. It doesn't have to be Lebanon, it doesn't have to be the Middle East. I'll tell you what, just give me your stuff. Give me your credit cards and your social security. Give me your check, and I'll, and I'll pay off it. I'll pay it a lot for you. And give me three months before you go to the U.S. Embassy back home and tell them they got stolen. And then they'll have a perfectly legitimate ID and credit cards, except that they're not mine. And I pay and I, I, I spend and pay it off and spend and pay it off and I call the credit card company and say, look, I have a good record. I need you to up the amount. And before you know it, 9, 10, 11 credit cards gives you about average about $100,000 uh, limit between them. And so you spend $100,000 on those cards and then you go home and shred them. You bust them out. It's very, very hard for law enforcement to track you down. And if they do, the penalties are very, very small. In any event, this is Muhammad Hamoud back when he's in Lebanon, before he comes to the United States, as a young teen, posing as an Imam Mahdi scout, Hezbollah's version of the Boy Scouts. According to Lebanon's Daily Star, one of the English language dailies in Lebanon, the Mahdi Scouts quote, so this is not my words, it's theirs, teaches young boys the basics of religion, jihad, and the ways of revolution as a prelude to carrying weapons in the anti-Israeli resistance in the South. But in fact, it's much more than that. It also, and I quote, gives religious and moral instruction rather than physical activity, <coughs> occupy the vast bulk of the Mahdi Scouts curriculum, according to a New York Times report. Textbooks provided for the Mahdi Scouts 12 to 14 year old age group include, for example, a chapter entitled Facts About the Jews, in which the Jews are described as, and I quote, cruel, corrupt, cowardly, deceitful, and they are called the killers of prophets, end quote. And then goes on to state a little bit while later, again, and I quote, their Talmud says those outside the Jewish religion are animals. Well, this, to give you something tangible about it, is, is one of these guys before he comes to North America. He at one point was asked, do you want in on the activity in Canada? And he said, no, no, we're doing quite well, thank you. We're doing our piece. What you're doing is important too in Canada. The guys need night vision goggles and all that, but we're doing our part raising funds with cigarettes, and we're very happy with that. There are other ways uh, in which um, uh, the, uh, the anti-Semitic tendencies have practical uh, ramifications beyond raising funds for explicitly militant behavior or recruiting the next generation. For example, a fatwa or a religious edict that was issued by uh, Shia clergy, we think it was Iranians for Hezbollah, we're really not sure. FBI reports this, but they don't say who it was, provided Lebanese uh, Shia drug dealers with a theological basis justifying their drug business with Western consumers, saying, we are making drugs for Satan, America, and the Jews. If we cannot kill them with guns, so we will kill them with drugs. Uh, and this was echoed in a 1994 FBI report, uh, which, which talked about the same thing. Now, uh, if you break down, if you kind of take a step back, and you try and break down the thematic Jew-hating that you see in this type of literature and in these organizations, it comes down to four basic categories. Uh, one is denigrations of Jewish character. Another is abuse of Judaism as a religion. Uh, a third is uh, traditional and non-traditional Jewish conspiracies. And the last is portraying Judaism as being an inherent conflict with Islam. Therefore, if you're a true believing Muslim, you must have an issue with the Jews because Judaism is in direct conflict with us. Or at least that is the, the message that they try and put out there. So let's walk through a few of these. Uh, reminding me, 
most of the images are not actually Hezbollah, including this one. This is not Hezbollah. Um, Jewish character. So, for example, um, most of these seize upon and propagate the kind of Shy Shylock type of stereotypes of the greedy, power hunger, and cowardly Jews. Uh, says Nasrallah in 1997, if we search the entire globe for a more cowardly, lowly, weak, and frail individual in his spirit, mind, ideology, and religion, we will never find anyone like the Jew. I am not saying the Israeli. We have to know the enemy we are fighting, he says in 1997. Right around the same time of that earlier slide where he was saying, our issue is not really with the Jews. There was clearly an, an issue of audience depending on who he was speaking to. Indeed, even after Nasrallah's March 1998 declaration saying we're not, we don't have any problem with the Jews, his subsequent statements gave lie to the words just one year later, he was crowing about the decline of the Israeli army. And he says, where are the impressive and easy victories? Where's the iron power for this invincible army? These questions are not an exercise in romantic delusions about a complete defeat for the Israeli army, but an unquestionable gateway to understanding the pace of degeneration, which has struck the psychological mindset that is absolutely dependent on power. Power is one of the most important aspects of the Jewish people. Power is an existential issue, even for the very identity of Israel. Jewish history embraces symbols like the story of Samson, who from defeat and death drew his last strength. I'll give you some more examples in a second about Hezbollah's twisting uh, Jewish scripture, which frankly is also uh, scripture for, the, for uh, Muslims. It didn't, by the way, just take uh, Nasrallah a full year to, to resume uh, his anti-Semitic uh, Jew bashing. Uh, barely two months after his uh, denial uh, in the spring of 1998 that, he was, that Hezbollah had anything to do with Jews, was not anti-Semitic in the least, he gave a speech dedicated to the villainy and odiousness of the Jews, describing the Jews as descendants of apes and pigs. He decried Israel as a few million vagabonds from all over the world, brought together by their Talmud and Jewish fanaticism, and the list goes on. Then Judaism itself also um, comes in for a fair amount of abuse. Hezbollah officials and representatives have sought to discredit Judaism through misrepresenting uh, the Jewish Bible, the Torah, and reviving the myth of Jewish blood, blood, blood libel. Hezbollah's Al-Manar satellite television station uh, broadcasts several programs purporting to educate its viewers about the true nature of Judaism, as they put it. In one, Al-Manar displays pictures of Israeli leaders with the label, ter label terrorist, ending with these words, misrepresenting a quote from the book of Isaiah. And Hezbollah says that it says in the book of Isaiah, this is Hezbollah's quote, when you enter a village, stab those you encounter, Kill with a sword those you capture. Pulverize children on sight. Take homes by force and rape the women. Implying that this is what the Jewish Bible tells Jews to do. The original passage, if you want to check it, is verses 15 and 16 from chapter 13 of Isaiah. And these are, in fact, a prophecy of the retribution that could fall upon Babylon, could fall upon the Jews if they don't listen to the word of God. It's all in the passive voice, not a command, and it's all saying what could happen to the Jews if they don't behave, not by in any means what the Jews should do. In another program, Amonar brings in a guest who's said to be an expert on Israeli weapons of mass destruction, and he informs viewers, quote, there are Torah-based reasons for many Americans to use WMD. You notice it's now Torah-based and the Americans, because the Jews 
control America. Therefore, it's essential that there be a world and Arab movement against this Torah-based project. This is a Torah-based plan to finish all Islam, quote-unquote. Judaism is frequently portrayed as an inhumane religion whose adherents seek to dominate and oppress the rest of the world. On a program in Al-Manar called Files, uh, Sheikh Al-Sabhuni, a leading cleric in northern Lebanon, warns in a show in April 2002 that Judaism, and I quote, is a project against all humanity. He then goes on to, uh, he also denied the premise on which Hezbollah officials had recently begun to rely, that Zionism was a separate issue from Judaism, and he says, and I quote, there is no such thing as Zionism. There is only Judaism. Zionism is a legend, a myth. This is on Hezbollah's owned, operated Almanar. Despite these programs, Almanar continued to broadcast, by the way, in Europe and the United States. In February 2004, Almanar aired a series that galvanized Western governments to take action. France in 2004, the Netherlands in 2005 took Almanar off the air. In 2006, the U.S. government designated it a terrorist entity and also barred it from U.S. airways. Germany in 2008, and it goes on and on. And the reason, or at least what prompted it, is this. Now, the link is there. You can go watch the video if you want. I originally had the video embedded in the slides. It's just too disgusting. It's just too disgusting. Uh, and it's a show called Al-Shatat, the diaspora, reviving the blood libel in which a cute little kid is asking, please, please, don't do this, and uh, Jews abduct a Christian child and use their blood to make their Passover matzah, uh, uh, the unleavened bread that uh, Jews eat on Passover. And in the relevant scene, a Jewish rabbi plots to find a sacrificial Christian child, the boy begs for mercy, addressing one of the Jews by name, only to have his throat slit and his blood very slowly collected into this uh, plate and, and down the middle, and it's just, it's, it's horrific. It's clearly a reenactment, but it's presented like this, this is the real world. Hezbollah anti-Semitism also parlays modern-day conspiracy theories. So less than a week after 9-11, Almanar broadcast uh, posited that Israelis and Jews were complicit in the 9-11 attacks. By this account, 4,000 Jews survived the attacks. Why? Because Israeli intelligence warned them of the impending disaster ahead of time, and they didn't go to work on September 11. Now, Hezbollah, by the way, uh, condemned 9-11, but that didn't stop them from putting forth this idea that somehow the Jews knew when they weren't there and let everybody else die. Similarly, Hezbollah leaders alternately deny the Holocaust or claim that the Jews themselves intentionally incited it. So in 1998, Mohammed Rad, the head of Hezbollah's political council, said, and I quote, from what we know of the Jews, their tricks and their deceptions, we do not think it unlikely that they partook in planning the Holocaust. At a minimum, they prepared the foreground which incited the Nazis to the Holocaust killings so that they could serve their settlement project in Palestine. Wrap your heads around that. They incited the Holocaust so that they could come and take our land. The Jews are also attempting to Judaize Jerusalem, forcing out Muslims and Christians, destroying the holy places. Jerusalem for the Israelis is a critical issue, Nasrallah says, and their plan for it is to become a Jewish city. At times, Hezbollah tries to portray, Juda portray Judaism as being um, in, uh, in conflict with Islam. Uh, an influential Shiite cleric credited as being one of Hezbollah's early ideological guides, we talked about him earlier, Sheikh Fadlallah, described Israel's supporters as a group which wants to establish Jewish culture at the expense of Islamic culture. 
and the country was meant to gather all the Jews to the world, to this region, to make it the nucleus for spreading their economic and cultural domination. Nasrallah himself has alternately propagated the conspiracy theory of a Jewish-Christian alliance against the Muslims, or a solely Jewish plot against Christians and Muslims alike, depending on who he was talking to at, at, at different times. So at one time he says, quote, the Jews have long hoped for a war that pits a Jewish-Christian alliance against the Muslim nation. Three years later, he's peddling a different message, and he's saying, and again, and I quote, in the eyes of the Zionists, we Christians and Muslims are mere servants and slaves to God's chosen people. And so it tends to be specific to the audience uh, at hand. Anti-Semitism in Almanar continues today, which the State Department just noted a few weeks ago in its annual report on human rights, which you can find on the State Department's website. Almanar aired a program just this year. It's a great video if you want to watch it. I don't have it here. Um, claiming that the Jews invented Hollywood movies, even Hollywood itself, in order to subversively insert Jewish superiority into American and global culture. Why? Because Jews, quote, felt rejected by real American society, says the narrator. So they tried to change society's opinion of them by inventing cinematic characters that would serve as role models. And she cites, for example, Superman. This is from the Almanar uh, piece on this. And as she's speaking, she's showing this cartoon of Superman that the Jews reportedly created. Why? Because Superman only fit into society by taking on the prophetic persona of Clark Kent, who I guess she thought was Jewish, though in the movies he's not particularly. Uh, the Jews, according to the narrator, slyly implied that their weak public face hid some true superhuman identity. Quote, Hollywood is a Jewish invention that changed the way Americans view America. Undoubtedly, the goal was to take over the greatest superpower in the world. So though a Western audience may find this to be a little bit silly, this is what is being put forth on, on Hezbollah's uh, uh, station. So let, let's go back to Canada. The trickle-down effect. Let's talk a little bit of Hezbollah's anti-Semitism as portrayed by its followers. We're outside now the formal structure of Hezbollah. We're outside Al-Manar. We're outside the Mahdi Scouts. We're outside the Islamic Resistance Support Organization. You can say this is parts and pieces of Hezbollah Incorporated. What about some of their operatives brow? What you're looking at is a photograph of some Hezbollah operatives here in Canada. Um, this is a surveillance picture that was taken by CSIS, your intelligence service. And the reason I have it and can show it to you today is because in this Charlotte, North Carolina trial, 2002-2003, uh, CSIS provided about 110 pages of declassified summary transcripts of intercepted telephone communications that they took of these Hezbollah guys and a small number of surveillance photographs. This is part of the public record. You can find this online, frankly. What they're doing here, I remember I told you how they were getting these false uh, IDs or IDs that were actually good but not belonging to them and the credit card bust-out schemes. So you don't carry these around and you know show them in public, so you put them into a cigarette uh, uh, box and then this is one of the guys checking out uh, the new uh, licenses or credit cards that he's getting. Uh, and this is the CSIS um, uh, surveillance photo. As you look at the trickle-down effect of Hezbollah's anti-Semitic kind of, if you will, corporate culture, it's evident in the actions and the attitudes of its grassroots supporters as well, not just kind of the formal structure of Hezbollah. 
Even when the party's official stance denied any anti-Semitic leanings, insisting its beef was limited to Israel and Zionism, the shift has not always been reflected among its followers. In fact, this may be a factor as to how deeply ingrained anti-Semitism is in the culture of Hezbollah, and how this early on is developed in the development of, of young Hezbollah adherents, as we saw in the case of the Mahdi Scouts. And again, the head of the parallel element here grew up in the Mahdi Scouts. And so it shouldn't surprise that anti-Semitism is prevalent among uh, Hezbollah's official members and operatives, but among their sympathizers and followers as well. Consider, for example, the comments of a young Hezbollah guerrilla fighter who escorted a reporter writing for the New Yorker magazine around southern Lebanon in 2002, shortly after, maybe a little over a year, year and a half after the Israelis withdrew from southern Lebanon. Looking out over the red-roofed houses of an Israeli community just over the border, and looking from southern Lebanon into northern Israel, the guerrilla informs the reporter, the Jews are sons of pigs and apes, as he points out down at the, at the, at the red-roofed houses. Consider the intercepted phone calls from this FBI investigation into the fundraising cell in North Carolina. Recording speakers condemning an undesirable news outlet back home in Lebanon, they say, God damn everything that they show. They are Jews. They are Jews. And the, the expletive here is they are Jews. But they're angry at a Lebanese media outlet for saying something that wasn't complimentary of Hezbollah. What's the worst curse you can think to say to these guys? These guys are Jews. Discussing a fellow Lebanese, and by the way, it's not, this is, a, this is not an anti-Semitic uh, example, but I wanted to give you an example of some of the stuff. Uh, it's not just the telephone um, uh, intercepts, but the FBI also had letters that they had written back and forth that they had linguists uh, translate, and they got typed up. You can see this is actually on, on FBI letterhead. Again, put into uh, evidence in this case. None of this is classified. Uh, in this case, this is not anti-Semitic, this is anti-American. I put this up just so you can see some of the different types of stuff that was collected in this case um, and uh, that I went through to look for some of these examples. Um, discussing a fellow Lebanese individual who they were told had been executed back in Lebanon as a traitor, the Hezbollah sympathizers in Charlotte cursed the term coat by referring to him as a Jew. Evidence from the same North Carolina case includes propaganda videotapes. In one, Hassan Nasrallah lambasts then-Palestinian Authority President Yasser Arafat for giving the land to the Palestinians, he says, to the Zionist Jews, the murderers, the savages, the racists, who commit every crime against the people of Palestine. That's Nasrallah speaking on a video that Hezbollah pre prepared and that the Charlotte guys were airing in one of their Thursday night fundraising uh, soirees they had in, in someone's living room, um, not every, but almost every week. A reporter for another magazine related a story about going paintballing in Lebanon with several Hezbollah fighters in 2012, one of whom showed off his marksmanship by firing bullets at a rope and saying, with each shot, Yehud, Yehud, with each shot, Jew, Jew. Hezbollah's anti-Semitic rhetoric, however, echoes far beyond the immediate circle of its official militants and operatives to include like-minded followers and sympathizers as well. So. Let's look at this, and to answer your question, sir, in the back, it's a 2009 rally in Montreal. And I'm not going to show you everything. We have Montreal and Toronto here at different places. So we're walking around with this ball of flag. Putting an Israeli flag. I want to show you 
this part right here, uh, where uh, a teenage boy picks up the catchy Arabic chant, Filastim Biladna, La Yehud Kiladna, which in Arabic rhymes, uh, Palestine is ours and the Jews are our dogs. Here, the next one. This might be more burning. So I think it's over here at 212. I'm going to have to show you the whole thing. I'm not saying these guys are his vote. You can't say that. They're clearly. Sympathizers, like-minded followers. All right. Um, so you had a variety of things being shouted at these at these competing um, rallies in Montreal and Toronto that same day. And so uh, one, you had this "Palestine is ours, the Jews are our dogs." The same day, at another rally featuring flags of his of his Balak and the Palestinian flag in Toronto, a woman is shouting out. And you find yourself, Jewish child, you are going to effing die. Only she takes great pleasure in, in alliterating the F word many times over. And uh, it's a little bit disturbing in particular because it's targeting a child. Um, if you take it to today, it's really interesting. What we're talking about is not just anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a form of racism. Racism is the problem. And Hezbollah today, their biggest problem is not the Zionists, it's not the Israelis, and it's not the Jews. They like it to be, they try and make it some way to pretend to be, but their biggest problem are Sunni rebels. Their biggest problem is that they are not fighting in the south against Israel, they're fighting in the east in Syria. And this is boomeranging back to them in terrible ways, including terrorism targeting their communities, and I don't have much sympathy for Hezbollah, but I denounce those acts of terrorism as much as I denounce any other act of terrorism. There's no excuse for targeting civilians of any kind. But you now have a situation where if you look at the nasty, nasty racism that's cutting both ways, the Shia to the Sunni, the Sunni to the Shia, the only thing that they have in common is that they both don't like the Jews. And when they really want to get angry at each other, they say, you, Sunni, or you, Shia, you are worse than the Jews. And there are many different uh, examples of that, including, for example, a variation. The, they'll be called the Safawi, which is uh, kind of recalling the Safavid dynasty. Sunnis will call the Shia Safawi, which is supposed to be uh, a derogatory. And sometimes, as a neologism, they'll call them Sahyu Safawi, as in uh, Sahyuni, that, that is uh, Zionist, right? So your, your, your Zionist Safavids, to imply a conspiracy. Uh, that involves somehow, somehow involved the Jews. Um, this ugly sectarian language, if you're interested, by the way, a colleague of mine, Aaron Zellin, two colleagues, Aaron Zellin and Philip Smythe, wrote a really excellent article for Foreign Policy Online. You can go online and find it. Uh, walking through the nasty, nasty racist lexicon of what they're calling each other and what these things mean, it actually says a lot. It's really, really nasty stuff. Um, and a lot of it, not... Well, some of it includes things that they try and bring in the Jew, because there's nothing worse than showing that you're in tandem with the Jews. Today, the bottom line is, Hezbollah's in a decent amount of trouble. It's in trouble uh, because of uh, its activities in Syria more than anything else. 
but this is coming on top of other things. So, for example, Hezbollah operatives, five Hezbollah operatives, including Mustafa Badruddin, cousin of Imad Mugniya, who succeeded him as the head of Hezbollah's Islamic Jihad organization, their, their terrorist element, have been indicted by the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, the UN Tribunal in The Hague, for the assassination of Prime Minister Rafik Hariri, the de facto head of the Sunni community in Lebanon. It's increasingly difficult for Hezbollah to get up and say publicly what it's been trying to afford for several years now, especially since the Israeli withdrawal in 2000. And then again, after Hezbollah dragged Israel and Lebanon both into a war neither country wanted in 2006, and again after Hezbollah took over downtown Beirut by force of arms in 2008, literally killing fellow Lebanese, the government of New Zealand, when they banned Hezbollah's military and terrorist wings, they specifically noted the takeover of downtown Beirut and killing fellow Lebanese as an act of international terrorism under New Zealand's definition. All of these, increasingly, with each action, 2000, 2006, 2008, Hezbollah had to increasingly try and push the idea that A, they are not terrorists, they are resistance, that this is a noble idea, and that they are protecting Lebanon from the Israeli enemy. Right now, as we speak, the new government in Lebanon is debating right now, will the policy statement of the new government include this tripartite statement? The people, the army, and the resistance. Will the new government give some type of umbrella to the idea of Hezbollah as the resistance, as if it's doing this for the government, and they're pushing back? They're also having a very hard time saying the other thing that they've been pushing very hard, which is, we do in, in Hezbollah only what is in the Lebanese interest. We never do things that are only in the interest of the Shia, our core constituent community, or Hezbollah, the party, or Iran, our primary external benefactors. It may be in those interests too, but we are acting in the Lebanese interest. Nobody can, with a straight face, in Hezbollah saying, we are acting in Lebanon and Syria in the Lebanese interest, given the way this is boomeranging back into Lebanon, kidnappings, suicide bombings, rocket attacks, nasty, nasty, they're, they're trying to say it, no one, no one is buying it. This has led to a designation of Hezbollah's military and terrorist swings by the European Union. It's led to them being banned by the GCC. It's led to, to being banned by Bahrain, by Egypt. <clears throat> but it's interesting. All of this, it's not just a matter of words. It's not just a matter of demonizing the other. It's not just a matter of building cohesion within your unit, being the vanguard against something. There are tangible operational consequences to this, and there always have been. In the book, I collected over time lots and lots and lots of declassified information. Canadian intelligence, American intelligence, oh, Singaporean, Filipino, Israeli, Jordanian, I mean, Kuwaiti, lots and lots of stuff. This is, what you're looking at on the left, um, is um, part of a declassified CIA report. And one of the things, that this report doesn't talk about it, but there, it talks about uh, Beirut at the time being the wild, wild West Beirut, the kidnappings, the hijackings, etc. On the right, of course, you have, we believe that is the first picture that we know of, of Imad Mugniya. Um, with uh, Captain Testraki from TW847. And uh, there was a very famous story. In fact, NBC made a made-for-TV movie about Uli Derrickson 
the uh, main stewardess, the chief stewardess um, on, the, on the flight, who was very, very brave, definitely saved lives, kept, you know, giving the hijackers a high time when they would beat people. They, they did beat several Americans. They put a bullet in the head of U.S. Navy diver uh, Bob Stetham, whose family lives about maybe 10 miles from my house, uh, kicked his, put a bullet in his head and kicked his carcass out in the car, on the tarmac. When the rescuers came that night to find him, they had to go without headlights for fear of being shot at by the guys in the plane, and they almost ran him over. It was horrible. <clears throat> One of the things she did was when they first got on, they said to her, go around and collect passports. We want the American passports, and we want any passport with a Jewish-sounding name. And she refused. She, she, wouldn't do, she didn't do it. She, she, there's no way not to get Americans, but she wouldn't just go around asking for, for Jewish names. And this, so this goes back to the very, very earliest days of Hezbollah, uh, and it continues today. There were a whole bunch of plots in Europe that led the European Union to first debate and ultimately designate the military and terrorist wings of Hezbollah, the most famous of which, and thankfully the only one to succeed, was in Burgess, Bulgaria, where they killed six individuals, five Israelis, and a Muslim Bulgarian bus driver, who, by the way, almost definitely saved lives at the last minute by moving the bus at the last minute and injuring several dozen uh, Israeli tourists. But there were other plots, um, including some of them by European Hezbollah operatives. A week and a half before Bulgaria was Cyprus, where a dual Swedish-Lebanese operative, Hussein Yakub, on his Swedish passport, had been going back and forth between Lebanon and Cyprus for quite a few years. I think he was recruited in 2007. And at one point, he's asked to do surveillance of all different kinds. Do surveillance of this hotel, he did it. Do surveillance of that hotel, he couldn't because it was under reconstruction. This parking garage, that place. At one place, they asked him to go find places where they serve kosher. He didn't know what that meant. He had to look it up and find out that some Jewish people eat kosher food. Right? So either Hezbollah really just likes kosher cuisine, or they were looking for a place where you might find Jews. And I submit that it's the latter. And this will blow your mind. Because at the end of the day, Again, because I'm pestered enough, I was able to get actual transcripts of his interrogation with Cypriot police. Not my English translation from the Greek, but the Greek government's official translator. <clears throat> You're looking at it right here with a pullout uh, in large and, and one piece highlight. Over the course of a couple of weeks, he first denies that he's Hezbollah. Then he says, fine, I'm Hezbollah, but you know Hezbollah is not a banned entity in Lebanon. And at the time, it wasn't in Cyprus either. This obviously is before the EU banned Hezbollah, although this action happened when Cyprus held the rotating presidency of the EU, so go figure. Then he says, okay, okay, I'm Hezbollah, but, but I was randomly recruited on the street by some guy named Rami to falafel stand. It was a fluke thing. It didn't mean anything. Later, he says, fine, I admit I was, I was targeted. I was recruited. I've been coming here for a long time. It's pretty standard uh, R2I, resistance to interrogation training, where it's not like in the movies, I don't want to ruin a homeland or whatever other shows you watch, but I started my career in FBI. In the real world, people aren't told never, ever speak. What they're told is, don't speak for a couple of days. And then if you have to speak, tell a little bit, but not everything. Spin a little bit of a yarn, bias a week, bias two weeks, so that if anybody else is there, and you may think nobody else is there, but you don't know, everybody else can get back to safely. There are several cases like this that I talk about in the book. In his last interrogation session with Cypriot police, not in an effort to incriminate himself, in an effort to explain what's the big deal. He says, look, fine, I told you, I'm his bow. Okay? But I would never do terrorism. 
I would never consent, I'm quoting from him now, I would never consent to participate in a terrorist attack. I don't believe that the missions I executed in Cyprus were connected with the preparation of a terrorist attack in Cyprus. Brace yourselves. It was just collecting information about the Jews. This is what my organization is doing everywhere in the world. Not the Israelis, not the Zionists, but the Jews. This is pretty serious stuff. It'd be bad enough if this was just nasty, nasty racism to demonize the other. But it ends up having very, very tangible uh, operational consequences as well. I want to thank you all for coming. I'm happy to take whatever questions you may have. Yes. And, uh, and thank I you. I want to ask a question. Hold on.